The scripture reading this morning is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It's good to see you and Happy New Year to you. I'm glad that you uh, joined us today. We're excited to have you, especially as we start uh, a brand new book together, studying the book of Mark. I'm excited to dive into this. And before we um, look into that, I just want to mention to you in passing, at the beginning uh, of the new year, uh, it's a time where many people set resolutions. It's a a time where people try to set uh, new patterns. And regardless of whether or not this has typically been your history, uh, my encouragement to you is to, at the very outset of the year, begin a practice of being in the Word. Um, And the reason why is because as we read the whole counsel of the Word of God, as we open up uh, the Bible, as we look at what it is that God has for us from His Word, His Holy Spirit applies those words to our heart. He reveals things to us. He shows us Himself. He declares Himself to us. It's an encouragement. Um, It's an encouragement to our hearts, a reminder of who He is. Uh, And so my encouragement to you, if you don't have a regular reading practice where you're working your way through the Bible, and it doesn't have to be in a year or two years or three years, but if you don't have a regular practice, um, would you make one of being in the Word? I assure you, you'll find it a blessing and an encouragement uh, to you, and you have time to catch up if you do want to try to finish uh, by the end of the year. So just, uh, that's just my two cents, a little commercial for you there, but turn in your Bibles if you're not there already to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1. And if you're joining us for the first time today, you picked a good day uh, to be here. Uh, As a church, we are convinced of the benefit of preaching our way through books of the Bible. And there's a lot of reasons um, for that. First of all, it, it gives us a, a greater sense of the overall arc of the narrative uh, of a particular book of the Bible and the way that it fits <clears throat> within the structure of the Bible as a whole. Um, second, it forces us to, to come to grips with and come to terms with aspects of God's character and nature and what he'd have us to learn and know both about him and ourselves that otherwise we would not wrestle with. And finally, in doing so, the Bible forces us to to take account of our lives and of the culture in which we live, and it reveals the ways that our lives and our culture do not match up with God's expectations. It gives us hope in that. It gives us direction in that. It gives us It gives us a sense of belonging in the person of God. And so as a church, one of the things that we're convinced of is that we want to work our way expositionally through a book. And what we mean by that is just little bit by little bit seeing what the word has for us. And that's what we're going to do uh, for a majority of this year is working our way through the book of Mark. We'll take breaks here and there, but we want to spend the majority of our time working our way through this book. 
And as we begin this series in the book of Mark, I mean, we come to it having just come out of the season of Christmas. And Christmas is that time of year where, where many people who otherwise would never even consider darkening the door of a church will come out to a Christmas service. Some people do that out of obligation. They feel guilted because of some, some childhood experience or some childhood expectation that this is the time of year that you have to go to church. And so they put in their time and they show up for a Christmas Eve service and they do everything that goes along with it. Other people, it's far more out of nostalgia and sentiment that they show up at a church. I mean, it's what they've always done. It's what their family always did. And so they come to Christmas, or a Christmas service or a Christmas Eve service simply because it is what they've always done and it doesn't really feel like Christmas without it. And still others are reluctantly dragged along to a church service by their family. And yet we know culturally at least in this country, that there are a growing number of people who do not identify with any religion in any way. And so even as culturally people remain open to a generic spirituality, more and more often they find themselves closed off from the specific claims of Christianity and the Bible. And that does a lot of things to the mentality and the thought, press, thought process of Christians. I've talked to so many Christians over the years, and particularly in the last several years, who have a feeling and a sense of doom and heartbreak, both at the state of the church, the state of Christianity in the United States, a real sense of hopelessness, a real sense of impending doom. Or at the very least, it creates in the hearts of many Christians a sense of melancholy at the degradation or at least at the perceived de degradation of Christian faithfulness in, in culture or Christian values in culture. And yet, at the very same time, in a, true in, a, in a true twist of irony, many Christians seem either unable or unwilling to articulate the simple, profound claims of the faith that they hold. And so unless we, begin to, or unless we uh, begin to feel hopeless, we find a challenge and an encouragement from one of the clearest voices of evangelical Christianity in the last century. There was a man named John Stott. He was an Anglican preacher, a man for whom I have tremendous regard. And in 1975, John Stott was addressing the, the, the Lausanne Conference, addressing the state of the church. And here's what he said nearly 45 years ago. Nothing hinders evangelism today more than the widespread loss of confidence in the truth, relevance, and power of the gospel. When this ceases to be good news from God and becomes instead rumors of God, we can hardly expect to exhibit much evangelistic enthusiasm. Probably the greatest impediment to the church is that so few, pastors or members, really believe that apart from Christ, people are eternally lost. Lacking this conviction, a church's major incentive tends to focus around maintaining the institution and its programs. And certainly we've seen that sort of breakdown exhibited in spectacular fashion in churches and denominations and gatherings 
all over the world. If you've been paying attention to the news, even in this week, the United Methodist Church had one of their primary gatherings where they met to decide the the fate uh, of their future denomination, and a denomination that once had been a true declaration of the gospel that had once held a true facts about the word of God and believed in the power of the gospel that has long since, at least on the whole, abandoned those faithful teachings of the gospel is now gathering to determine the fate of their denomination as they decide whether or not to remain a united denomination because of issues surrounding sexuality. And I say that not to pick on one denomination, but to say that there are examples like that all over the world. You see the programs of the church, the study of apologetics, training in rhetoric and logic and charitable actions are all right and they're all good and necessary. But the reminder of John Stott in 1975, as true today as it's ever been, echoes the declaration of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where he wrote, when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I think for for the average Christian, far too often we try to put our dependency to convince others of our faith in our own words and our own ability to explain or articulate our faith. We put that confidence in our own ability to create arguments that are unassailable. And what we do in the process is we rob the very power of the word of God, believing that it is not inherently enough to create the change in the hearts of men and women that the Bible promised it would complete. And that is the power of the gospel that Mark writes to reveal to us. See, Mark is different from a lot of the other gospels in a lot of ways. First of all, it's very fast-paced. What you'll notice uh, in the portion that we read this morning is that Mark completely skips over the birth narrative that we find at the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Matthew. He talks nothing about the history of Jesus, at least in, in terms of his lineage. He doesn't talk about any of those things. He dives right into the story. He writes in this kind of quick form of narrative. He writes in the present tense which is different than all of the other Gospels because Mark doesn't write this book uh, as a historical treatise like Luke does or as an in-depth biography as Matthew does, but he writes it as a proclamation, a declaration of the life and death and life of Jesus Christ. And unlike the other Gospels, Mark doesn't spend as much time recording Jesus' teaching, but he spends almost all of his time recording Jesus' doing. See, Mark's goal in this book is the same thing that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 2 and the same thing that John Stott reminded us of in 1975. That the goal of the gospel is that you would come face to face with Jesus. Because through encountering the person of Christ, you begin to see the whole arc of the world and your specific place in it. And so Mark is really written in two halves. In chapters 1 through 8, 
talking about the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is this man who claimed to be God? And then chapters 9 through 16, talking about the purpose of the cross. And in the first opening 12 words of this book, we find words that are packed with meaning. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, even in those opening words, there is so much here to unpack because Mark begins uh, by saying, I want you to know from the very beginning what I'm, what I'm going to talk to you about. I'm going to declare to you the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark writes uh, in, the, in about the, the 50th year uh, of this uh, modern era, in about A.D. 50 to A.D. 60, this is the very first recording of the written gospel. Up until this point, in the first 20 to 30 years, following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was no written gospel. The word was transmitted orally, person to person. People knew of the accounts of Jesus. They had heard the declaration of his good works, of his deeds, of his miracles, of his teachings. They had heard about his perfect life. They'd heard about his death on the cross and his resurrection. They knew the stories of Jesus Christ. And so powerful was the story of the gospel that thousands upon thousands of lives were being changed all throughout this region and beginning to creep out into the entire world. See, at this point, there wasn't a lot of reason to have a written recording because so many people were still around who had known Jesus Christ personally, had witnessed his exploits and heard his teachings. I mean, you find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about the resurrection. And he says, look, if you want to know more information about the resur resurrection of Jesus Christ, all you need to do is go find these people who were there who witnessed it personally. Go talk to the disciples who put their hands, or put their fingers rather, in the wounds of Jesus Christ's hands. Go talk to the 500 who were gathered at once, who saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so the ability of people to make up stories about Jesus or change or alter the story of the life of Jesus was limited. But now, about a generation has passed. Those old individuals who had seen and known Jesus were beginning to die off. And so Mark begins to record all of the memories and all of the stories, all of the encounters that he'd had of Jesus. He's preserving the story for us. And according to early church history accounts, Mark was a secretary uh, and the translator for Peter as Peter began his work of preaching and proclaiming first in Jerusalem and then later into Rome. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we find that Peter references Mark as the one who was with him on his missionary journey where he's preaching and proclaiming the gospel. See, what we find in this book are the eyewitness accounts of his life. And, and Mark begins with this incredible phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One commentator remarked on how similar this opening phrase is to the opening phrase of Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God. So much so that as Mark declares here, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's implying is that Jesus' story is the most significant moment since creation itself. 
that all history had been leading up to this point, that the gospel contained the greatest news the world had ever heard. And if that's not enough, he goes on to say, this is Jesus the Christ. Now, in a modern day setting, if I use the name Jesus or if I use the name Christ, I can use those terms interchangeably and you know what I mean. In fact, often I'll do that. I'll reference Jesus as Christ and you'll do the same. But to the original hearers, to those who would have first heard this word or read these words in this letter, for those who would have first heard this recording, that would have jumped off the page at them. Because that word Christ literally means the Messiah, the anointed king, the ruler of the world, the one who would set straight everything that was broken. This is the one who was promised in the Garden of Eden. This is the one that Isaiah had foretold about. This is the one whom God had promised was going to redeem his people and set everything right. And as if that's not enough, Mark continues by calling Jesus Son of God. Jesus is no mere prophet. He's not just a teacher. This is the one who existed in eternity past with the Father. This is God. And here's why all of this information that you may already know is so incredibly practical for us. Because there are all sorts of people who love to use the life or the words or the tenets of Jesus when it is convenient for their own purposes. And nowhere, perhaps, do we find that more, more, demonst- more, uh, more demonstrated more powerfully than in the political sphere. I mean, if you've been paying attention to the news and the claims of particular presidential candidates people in positions of authority and influence, what you will see consistently is people citing the words or the life of Jesus Christ to fit their own narrative while conveniently ignoring the rest of the teaching and the life of Jesus Christ that doesn't quite line up with what they believe. And certainly we've probably all been guilty of doing the same and have met other people who've done the very same thing. But understand this, when you encounter the historical Jesus you must also account for all of the things that you don't like about him. And to fail to do so is to begin to create a God who exists in your own image. Because if your perspective of Jesus is one who thinks like you and acts like you and believes like you and criticizes the same people that you criticize and does everything the same way that you would do it, all you have done is create a Jesus who exists in your image. You have ignored the Jesus who is given to us in these pages. But Mark forces us to encounter the historical Christ. He forces you to see Jesus for who he is and forces you to answer the question, what will you do with Jesus? His name and his nature and his life and his claims demand a response. And Jesus will not allow you to remain neutral about him. When you see the radical claims and the radical life of Jesus Christ, it demands a radical response. Because Jesus Christ either is who he said he is and demands your everything or he is a liar and a fraud 
and deserves no attention at all. But Jesus will not exist as another good teacher. He will not exist as just an influencer. He will not exist as a moral model. And as if that's not enough, Mark continues in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark continues with this rapid fire story and he cites Isaiah chapter 40 where uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesies about one who would come before the Messiah as a proclaimer, a messenger. This one who was going to make the way straight before the Lord. The one who was going to prepare the way and declare the coming of the eternal Messiah. So we tend to read this and we read right past it, but we ought not do that. Because if you notice in verse 3, when, when uh, Mark, quoting the prophet Isaiah, uses this phrase, the way of the Lord, the word Lord that's translated in our Bible there is literally the word Yahweh. This is the personal name that God gave Moses in the wilderness. This is the name that a faithful Jew would not have uttered out loud or written down. This is This is a reference to the personal name of the creator God himself. And what Mark is implying with no uncertainty here is that the one who followed John the baptizer, this one called Jesus, was in fact Yahweh. That the transcendent had become physical. That the divine had become flesh. And now we're going to meet this man named John, beginning in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Here is the prophet of whom Isaiah had foretold 750 years earlier were introduced to John the baptizer and look how he's described. He's dressed in camel's hair. He has a leather belt. He's eating locust and wild honey. Now how seriously would you take John the baptizer if he walked up here this morning and began to preach? If I was standing here this morning wearing some sort of a a camel hair toga with bugs in my teeth, I mean how seriously are you taking the message that I'm delivering? Because do you understand that that's the picture that's being painted for us? I mean this is a strange character by any account. This is the one This is the one of whom Isaiah prophesied. The one who was going to prepare the way for Yahweh in the flesh. For the eternal God to come as a human being and save humanity. This is the one that God chooses of all the people in the world to introduce Jesus. Why choose this man? Why not use the chief priest? Why not use a polished preacher? Why not use a biblical scholar? Of all the Pharisees and of all the Levites, of all those who could have been the one to proclaim the coming Christ, why choose the strange man? And as if that's not enough, we're told that he's out in the wilderness. Now here's why that's significant. 
the wilderness, that term, whenever it's used biblically, it's a reference to the fact, or it's at least hinting at the idea that the children of Israel had for had for a great many years been wandering around in the wilderness, that they didn't have a place to call home. It was in those times of judgment where they were apart from God, where, where they had stopped hearing the voice of God, where they were waiting for God to do something. And as if that's not enough, at this time, if you wanted to worship God, if you wanted to know God, if you wanted to encounter God, you went into the city. You went into Jerusalem and you came to the temple and you met with a priest and you heard the scroll as it was being read aloud for you and and you confessed your sins and sacrifice was made as an atonement for your sins and that was where you encountered God and knew God. And yet John, dressed in camel hair and eating locust, is out in the wilderness where people have to leave their homes and leave their city and walk the opposite way of going to the temple to come hear this man preach. And listen, they came in hordes. I mean, this isn't John the baptizer with three or four acolytes. This is John the baptizer in the middle of nowhere proclaiming to everyone who would come. And we're told in this verse, and we'll touch on it in a moment, we're told in this verse that all Jerusalem and all Judea went to hear this man. See, all of this indicates the state of religion in Jerusalem. What had taken hold in the temple that had once been the place of the faithful proclamation of God's providence and care, what had taken hold instead was now a dead orthodoxy where once you had had prophets and priests who cared for the people and loved the people and heard from God and devoted their lives to God, you now had priests who were wrapping themselves in rich clothes, afraid that the hem of their garment would touch those who were dirty or unclean. Hypocrites and self-righteous who were going through all the external motions of religiosity, all the external motions of faithfulness while having hearts that were cold and dead to God. And when people walked into the temple, they encountered Pharisees with pristine robes and eloquent words, but people who detested the poor and the unclean. And we find God's own opinion of the state of this religion back in Isaiah chapter 1 where God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And in Isaiah 29, he writes, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me.
God was looking at the religious establishment of the day, at the temple that had been in operation for hundreds of years, and yet God, to this point, had been silent for 300. And in calling John into the wilderness, God was looking to reset the religious order. Because look what they found in John as contrasted with the priests. Verse 7. And John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And I put this in context. In any good Hebrew home, when when a visitor would come into town and and would show up at your house in order to share a meal with you, the, the servants in the house would greet him and the very lowest servant in the house, the one who had the least regard, the least influence, perhaps the one who had most recently become a servant of that household, the one who had no clout and no authority, that particular servant would greet that visitor at the door, he would get down on his hands and knees and he would begin to remove the stinking, smelly, muddy sandals of the visitor. And to put this in very stark contrast, remember the time at which people live and the way people found their transportation. Having walked through dirty, dusty, muddy streets and having walked through the droppings of animals, as you entered into someone's home, your feet would have been offensive by any standard, ancient or modern. And as if that's not enough, these are a people who put very high value on cleanliness both personally and before God. And that servant would have to get down and would have to remove the sandal straps and would have to take off that shoe and wash the feet of the visitor before they entered the home. It was a lowly job. And John, this one who had gathered hundreds, perhaps thousands, maybe tens of thousands into the wilderness to hear his preaching and his proclamation, this one this one who commanded so much respect and so much regard, who had so much influence in his day, this same one says, the one who follows me, Jesus Messiah, he's so awe-inspiring, he's so wonderful, he's so powerful, he's so majestic and beautiful that I am not worthy to untie his sandals. John is saying, I don't even deserve to do the task of the lowliest servant. See, for all of their religion, what the Pharisees missed was the need for true repentance of the heart. And John was speaking to the deepest need of the human condition. And if we can just stop there for a moment and consider this. May we take a moment to hear this as a warning. To not be a people who care about the externals at the cost of the heart. Because it is so easy for us to do that. See you, like the Pharisees, may be able to articulate your systematic theology And you may be able to argue the finer points of your eschatology. 
and yet not give a care for the person with whom you interact who does not know Jesus Christ. And you may be able to sing as we sang this morning, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Only to leave this building and use that grace, not as a means of being drawn closer to Christ, but as an excuse to indulge in the very sin he died to free you from. You may be able to say amen to a sermon only to sit with a cold heart and a critical mind that is silently judging others by the thoughts and intents that you can't possibly know. See, the side question that I have for us this morning is how would we receive a modern-day John the Baptist? One who is speaking to the deepest need of the human condition and proclaiming the depth of your need for a savior. But he didn't match the externals of what you'd expected. How do we think about those around us in light of what we know about Christ? And so profound is the message of John that we're told that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So they go out to him and they hear this message of repentance and they hear the need for a savior. They're reminded of the thing that they need the most. And what then does John do? Then he begins to baptize people. And again, this is totally unexpected. See, baptism did exist in one form, and if you go back to our baptism sermon, you can hear more about this, but baptism did exist in a form, but it was exclusively the idea that one would go and wash themselves before coming to the temple to worship God. So if you know you had committed sin, if you knew you had touched something that was unclean, if you knew that you were going to the temple to worship, you would go down to the river and you would participate in this ceremonial cleansing where you would wash yourself as an indication of your own repentance and your own heart. It was it was that kind of exposure that people had to, to, to baptism, but a faithful Jew knew nothing of the kind of baptism that John the Baptist was talking about. Because they come to John and John says, you need to repent in your heart. You need to turn from what you were before to what God would have you be. You need to understand your, ex your need for an external savior. And then John said, regardless of who you are or where you come from, you need to be baptized as a symbol of repentance, but it needs to be me who does, it, who does it. See, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he was the one baptizing. And this would have been something that a faithful Jew would have never seen before. What in the world is this guy doing baptizing somebody? That's something you do yourself. But see, unlike the Pharisees, John wasn't impressed by the achievers and he wasn't disdainful of the failures. For the very first time in their tradition, it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile, a priest or a prostitute, a Levite or a leper, John was declaring, you need someone else to wash you. John is proclaiming unequivocally, you cannot save yourself.
And then he says in verse eight, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, the one who follows will not only bring a cleansing, he will bring life itself. See, there's so much to discuss in these verses, and we'll spend plenty of time in this book. We'll talk more even about the introduction uh, and the background of this book next week as we gather. But we are left in this moment with the implicit question that Mark places before us. What will you do with Jesus? The radical claims about his person demand a radical response. You cannot come away from Jesus unchanged. Either everything about you will begin to to undergo the transformation of the gospel through encountering him where you understand your need for a savior, you understand your own brokenness like John the baptizer, you understand the depth of your own sin and your own unworthiness where you understand the fact that you needed the God of the universe, the creator, Yahweh, to step into time, to break into the darkness of this world, to bring rescue and salvation where there was hopelessness and death. Or you will be hardened and calloused and offended. And make no mistake about it, this message is offensive. Because the whole message of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, is that we desperately needed rescue, that we were unable to achieve ourselves. That is inherently offensive. That you, on your best day, with your best motivations and your most valiant efforts, can accomplish absolutely nothing for your salvation. That is, John Owen once stated, the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And I would also just say as an invitation, to the extent that you're wrestling with these ideas, God in the flesh. Telling me there was a man who was actually God. And as if that's not enough, that this man somehow managed to live a perfect life. That he died and that he was risen from the dead. To the extent that you're wrestling with these ideas, I hope that you'll find Disciples Church to be a safe and welcome place to learn and ask and challenge and grow. Because the book of Mark is written to the skeptic. It's written to someone just like you. Someone who says these claims can't be true, this can't be real. And what Mark's gonna do and what we're gonna study together are the miraculous and amazing and life-altering, world-shifting, paradigm-changing claims of the person of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you'll find this a place where you can wrestle well and consider these things with us. And to those that are here, would you find these words to be words that bring hope in the midst of a culture that desperately needs it? 
that the power of change does not lie in your ability to explain in lofty words with high ideas, but that the power of change rests within the simple and profound story of the gospel. And may we learn it well, that we may proclaim it to others. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for Mark's recounting of your incredible life. I thank you that in your sovereignty and in your grace and in your goodness that you gave us a written record, and not just this one, Lord, but also those that we find throughout the New Testament where we see that very real people who had very real objections to you found you to be so compelling and so beautiful and so awe-inspiring and so real that their lives were turned upside down in pursuing you. And as we'll talk about next week, that so many of those people who followed you walked through the darkest days they could have imagined through persecution and death and yet remained confident and sure that their faith lied in one who existed before time, who saw fit to break into this world, to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserved, and to raise from the dead, showing your power over everything, that they might know where their future lies with you. I thank you for the good gift of Christ. May we be faithful in our study. And may the Spirit enlighten our minds to understand and our ears to hear and our eyes to see the wonders of your good news. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.